Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Scherba, and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Maggie and Hami Boynton, the founder and CEO at ShopThing and one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 female founders. Maggie, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on. I have been looking forward to this conversation around the transformative things you're doing in retail and shopping. Uh, Why don't we just jump right into it? Can you take us through your personal and career journey leading up until today? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm not really sure how far back you want me to go because I can start as early as 16, but I won't. Um, (laughs) I'll start from my professional career. Uh, I actually started in the world of branding. I worked for a digital branding company. uh, And it was kind of a fluke job. I studied psychology in school, which has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. Um, But my brother-in-law got me into this digital branding company. And I was obsessed with the world of digital. I was always pretty not a, I can't say I'm a digital native because I didn't grow up with um, a screen the way digital natives do today but sure. always obsessed with technology and so once I landed in tech I literally never left I went from that company to a digital advertising company spent a few years there moved on to Rogers communications on the digital side as well worked for a couple of years there uh, and then I decided I needed to be in a smaller environment Rogers really taught me that I'm not made for a corporate 10,000 plus person company. And so I actually joined my sister and brother-in-law. They had started a mobile startup and they started this company literally probably like six months before iPhone even released their very first model phone. Uh, So pre-app store days, my brother-in-law was really hell-bent on the fact that Mobile was going to be the way of the world, and everybody was going to transact on mobile. And we're looking at him thinking, Are you crazy? Our phones have like <laughs> nothing. It was ba- basic phones. All we had was texting. Uh, and so, you know, a year into their journey, what, journey, when I saw what had happened with the App Store and the rise of mobile, I decided I wanted to join them. Uh, and so, joined their startup. Really, what we did was we created mobile apps for the country's largest banks, quick service restaurants, retailers, lottery, loyalty, what have you. So spent 10 years building these incredible mobile products for top-tier Canadian companies. I uh, was fortunate enough to exit that company, which was acquired by the Vivendi Group, uh, the world's largest communication company based out of France. And was again then fortunate enough to get to work on the executive team uh, for Havas for 3 years, really leading their operations and product side of the business. Uh, and then one day, as luck would have it, I came across this Instagram account of this lady. She would literally pop into stores in New York City and she would try things on and allow her uh, follower base to purchase things from her in real time. Uh, And so I was was obsessed with this concept. I tried to buy something from her. And long story short, I was Canadian. I didn't have a Venmo account. So keep (laughs) it But after I found that being, you know, the product and operations background that I had, the first thing I thought was, A, this can be done much better, not on Instagram. And B, this must exist somewhere else. And so I Googled it, found the trend in Asia. At the time, it was an $18 billion trend. Today, it is... I guess not trend industry. Today, it's $500 billion, So it's grown quite a yeah. bit in the last three and a half years. And spent hours upon hours watching these you know, Chinese influencers sell everything and anything from 
pancakes to banana holders to cars to real estate to rocket launches like it is insane what they sell uh in china yeah. in, in the in this live streaming way uh, and i couldn't understand a single word like peter literally it was all in mandarin yeah. i had no idea what was happening but i was addicted to this concept of being able to buy things in real time and having somebody describe the item for you telling you how it fits how it feels what it looks like uh, it was really engaging it was you know you had an opportunity to chat with the host and to talk with other customers and so i quickly did a search and noticed that nothing existed in north america uh, and i'll give you a little bit of background i actually at the time had a blog as a micro, 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 micro influencer. I'll call myself a nano influencer. Um, <laughs> but, but I just did that on the side because I've always loved style and retail and fashion. Um, and so once I came across this trend, I realized that it was kind of this coming together of my vocation and my knowledge and you know having been in tech for 10 plus years paired with my passion in it for retail and style uh, coming together. And so I decided you know, th these kinds of opportunities come across once in a lifetime. Yeah. Uh, I had to kind of take that jump and see what could be. Yeah. And then here we are today with, with ShopThing, you know, starting to disrupt the industry in a real major way. Totally. I guess I should tell you what ShopThing is. All I do is just tell you about my background. But um, ShopThing is we're in the live shopping space. So we are actually a marketplace. We pair brands with influencers to host live shopping events. So think new age QVC instead of it being on your TV, it happens on your mobile. And instead of it being, you know, the products being presented to you by a trained host, it's actually yeah. in our world done by an influencer. So we take these incredible tastemakers, they curate a collection of, let's say it's clothing, they curate a collection of clothing for you, they'll try it on, they'll, you know, talk to you about how things fit, how they feel, what they're made of. Uh, and you can watch in real time and purchase products as they are live shopping it. Which is, I, I, if we just think back to what shopping was, even as, as recently as 10 years ago, right? There was such a clear delineation between shopping in a physical store, shopping online, two very distinct experiences, right? And then now we have these collisions of physical and virtual worlds with real-time interaction. It's tr truly mind-boggling where we're netting out and then what the future of this is, right? With things like Metaverse and kind of what AR and VR are going to begin to do. So this is a very exciting space um, to, to explore and talk about with you. But before we really dive fully into shopping, I want to talk about a shared experience we have because I too worked at Rogers for just under a year. For me, it was a full-time co-op while I was at Waterloo uh, and part of the co-op program there. And, uh, you know, for anyone who's an American or, or international listener, Rogers is the Canadian equivalent of AT&T. It's one of our big three uh, telco operators. And, well, you know, it was quite the experience. And I think it also very, very clearly helped me understand that most likely working on, let's say, industry or client side, particularly in the telco space, wasn't going to be for me. And and for me specifically, when I was there, I happened to, to overlap with one of their big 800-person layoffs, right, where every couple of days I would walk through a floor and you know, half of it was gone. Then the next half of it was gone and took two months for them to refigure out who did what and what teams were still there. And it was a very eye-opening thing to go through as a 21-year-old, right? Still in school. But, um, you know, there was a number of things that for me, as much as I also benefited from from the experiences I had there, helped shape my opinion of, of kind of client-side or industry-side. 
maybe share what it was uh, within your experience that helped you understand that you probably weren't going to go that route in terms of corporate careers. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, my time at Rogers was amazing. I met some incredible people. We did some really incredible work. uh, And I think it was a super valuable experience. But I really quickly learned, especially coming from the agency side, and I'd always been at kind of smaller agencies under 100 people. Coming from that world, I quickly realized that I don't love the bureaucracy of a big organization. I don't love not being able to make decisions quickly. I didn't love not seeing the impact that my work was having on the larger organization. And I think as an entrepreneur, that's one of the most exciting things about what you do is it's so impactful. Everything that you know, my team does in, in and out, day in and day out is so impactful to the larger organization. And it's not always going to be that way. I know when you become, you know, Uber size or meta size or, you know, Apple size, it won't be that way. But for today and for the foreseeable future, we'll be able to, you know, make really impactful decisions. And I think that's what really drives me. Yeah. And, and I mean, we've, I've heard that on, on, in these conversations on this podcast over and over again. And, and I think, uh, it is such a persistent theme that following the impact usually translates to success results and, and many other great things. Now, in terms of then, you know, the opportunity to work with plastic mobile, right? The startup, um, with family initially, and obviously it grew from there, uh, with an eventual, um, acquisition, but, can we just talk about the incredible foresight that that was had around, for example, the future being in mobile and then very quickly the future, you know, our present being flipped upside down by by a transformative mobile device. What was that like in those early days when the App Store was just taking shape and then and as working in the early kind of mobile world when it comes to building mobile products? Uh, you very much would have been establishing trends or setting trends with mobile experiences. Talk a little bit about what it was like growing your career in that moment with such a constantly changing landscape. Yeah, it's funny because we're doing that again here. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the early days of plastic, it was a lot of knocking on doors and trying to sell this vision of mobile being the future to people that you know, weren't really used to that, didn't understand that. We're talking about big organizations like the Rogers, like RBC, like TD, like yeah. you know, Loyalty One. And they didn't necessarily in the early days, they're not the disruptors. They're not early adopters. These are big corporations. So it was a lot of fighting uphill, trying to get people to understand that mobile was the way of the future. We did it for long enough that, you know, at one point, we did see the turn, the tides right. turning. And you know, then we started getting people knocking on our door and asking us for help and understanding the service. It became much easier to sell. But in those in the first two to four years, it really was an up upwards battle. And we're, you know, we face that not so much now because COVID was a massive accelerant on our business and people then understood the value of not only e-commerce but live commerce. Um, but you know, still and and I would say probably two years ago, it was a lot of, let me show you and prove to you the value of why this trend, this tech, this phenomenon is more than just that, why it will be the future of commerce. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, amidst your time at Plastic, in that time of great or huge transformation in, in the mobile industry and, and, and how people interacted with with. Uh, technology and devices having changed so much, right? Uh, at the same time, your role ch- 
changed considerably in that you came in, you know, at like that middle management level and then ascended into senior leadership and then transitioned from senior leadership at Plastic into then Havas, as you said, right, which is a much larger organization. Talk a little bit about that growth and how you were able to, to essentially step into those more senior roles successfully at such an accelerated pace, but then also transition from a small organization into a senior role into a larger organization as that shift happened to Voss. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I'll talk about the first moving from, you know, coming in as a sort of program director, managing a very yeah. small team of project managers, and then having to grow. Like we were almost doubling our business year over year. So you can imagine right. when I joined, there was eight of us. Uh, I think two or three years in, there were 50 of us. Um, right. And and so, you know, with that came a lot of process. Uh, and so I had to quickly learn how do we build proper process for efficiencies? Uh, how do we make sure that we're not slowing down, especially in the agency world? You don't want to slow down um, the development process or I guess the entire process of getting out a product to the customer because you've added in these internal processes as a result of growth. So I mean, it was really challenging, but I learned a ton. And then moving from a 100-person company and merging in with the rest of Habas Canada, becoming a 300-person company and having to sort of oversee operations as a whole was a whole other challenge because now I had to bring on multiple teams that were doing you know, business in their own ways and try and build a holistic process for a holistic team. Uh, I'm not going to say it wasn't challenging. It really was. But it it also taught me how to grow. It taught us how to scale. Uh, And I'm like so grateful for those opportunities. Uh, And I think that it's made me a much, much better entrepreneur. Absolutely. And then also, I can only imagine that, you know, as part of an acquisition like that, there's obviously an assessment of culture and fit, but there would have been a collision of cultures, right? Huge. And oh my God. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about that. And, and especially in a senior leadership role, how you were able to help then shape a collective or um, universal culture for the organization and maybe how you've able, been able to transition and, and transfer that skill set and learning into how you're shaping the culture for shopping now. Peter, I didn't think you were going to ask me such difficult questions. Um, <laughs> merging cultures post-acquisition, I would say it's probably one of the most difficult things I've had to do in my career. On, like, Honestly, ahead of everything else, outside of starting your own business and you know doing everything from scratch, uh, merging to pretty different company cultures is, is a really difficult task. And I will say, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it ever happens seamlessly. There's always going to be bumps in the road and challenges that you have to face. Uh, but I think in the end, we actually came out with... I, don't, I, I wouldn't say one company swallowed the other company's culture. We had to create a new culture for the company. So we went from super scrappy tech startup merged with a much bigger advertising organization. We were right. really on two different playing fields. We acted like a startup and they acted like an advertising, like a traditional advertising agency. So it was about how do we find something in between um, that worked for both the advertising world and the tech world. Uh, and I think we did an, actually a decent job of doing that. We injected some of our tech startup into the advertising world. And we also took some of their, you know, life of creativity and the way that they view the world as well. Um, but it was super challenging. Um, I think for me, you know, I talked about it when I talked about Rogers. I love that uh, small organization. And so, you know, Shop Things culture is that we are a tech startup. We work hard, play hard. We, you know, we play to win. We fail fast. Yeah. We fail often. 
um, we respect each other, we work together. It's very much that tech startup feel. Very cool. And it's interesting hearing you say that about having to create that new kind of hybrid culture or net new culture, um, just because even paralleling to my own career and my my uh, current organization at Publicis Sapien four years ago, we had the injection and basically startup of a net new capability in the form of management consultants inside of a broader kind of technology and digital marketing consulting firm. And that was a huge collision, right? You have management consultants entering a space where you have creatives and designers and very technical people. And mm-hmm. obviously that has taken some time to, to establish what that new hybrid uh, culture is. And it's very interesting to hear a parallel experience on a slightly different scale and in a slightly different space with a startup meeting with an advertising agency. But I, I certainly see similarities there. And it, it does sound like having to create that net new culture to, to bring everyone along the ride, uh, obviously seems like the prevailing solution. You know, that said, then you you stumble across this uh, incredible new trend, right? As you said, you sunk hours into uh, observing and and understanding this world in Asia, and then seeing the white space for it in North America. I guess it, you know it feels like it's maybe a little bit different than, let's say, your first foray into the startup world when mobile was a new thing globally. Whereas here, you're taking an established and almost mature um, trend or industry that in another part of the world and then transplanting it to a new region and a new audience. Um, maybe talk about the similarities or differences in, in this moment and this opportunity versus kind of when you were starting out in the mobile space. Yeah, you're totally right, Peter. It, it wasn't something that's brand new. It was definitely brand new and still is in the early stages in North America. Uh, but we did have a model to base it off of, which is right. like a little bit, a little bit more cushy than, you know, blazing through with everybody in the early days of the app store when nobody else, like nobody was doing it. It was brand new for everybody. Um, You know, what we did a little bit differently is even though the trend existed in Asia and it was pretty large there, they, I think they were probably about four or five years ahead of us. Um, I, we were very mindful and thoughtful in the early days. We didn't want to just take what worked in Asia and plop it into North America. We thought a lot about what does a North American consumer want? How do they consume content? How do they, you know, purchase products? What right. is the lack in, in in e-commerce? What's lacking in North America? Because we're not the same consumer as the Asian consumer, and we've never been. Their adoption of technology far surpasses ours. Their, you know, their prevalence of super apps doesn't even compete to what we have in our space. And so we were really mindful about how we thought about shopping and live shopping in North America. And we've gone at it from a different angle than anybody else has in our space. All of our other competitors have taken what's worked in Asia, literally that exact blueprint and plopped it into North America. And we, you know, our thesis is that is not the right approach. The right approach is to think about it from a North American lens. Um, So one of the things that really differentiates us is this short video. So we are not a two to five hour live stream. You don't have to right. hop on like QVC and watch for the five hours to see what's coming up. Everything is done in 15 to 30, 45 second video clips uh, that you can consume on your own time. Yes, it's going to be live during a certain period. And if you want to get all the really, really good stuff that flies, you have to tune in while it's live. But you know, if you're more of a casual shopper and you want to watch it at 9pm before you go to bed, which a lot of our consumers do, then you can totally catch it then. Watch it like you would a TikTok 
uh, at night or Instagram stories, just flip through short video clips and purchase in that way. That's very cool. And, and, you know, admittedly, this was a new space to me in, in getting connected with you and then exploring shop thing and kind of using the app and trying to understand how, how this, um, interaction was intended to work. I find it very interesting and I'll compare and contrast it to my experience with, uh, my own passion areas and kind of the equivalent, I, I guess, kind of influencer or, uh, assessors of quality, let's say that exist out there. Cause I'm very much in, I'm a car enthusiast. I'm a watch enthusiast and you have automotive journalists, you have watch review sites, right? And so those are two spaces that are, have deeply ingrained cultures of like journalism, uh, publication based reviews and endorsements of, uh, or assessments of quality or performance. Right. And you essentially have these experts as well as then like a second tier of players that, you know, in an asynchronous way, produce content that assesses the quality of either a watch or a car or whatever the case is um, in the industry. Now, when we shift over to shopping and this and this space of kind of this uh, live stream retail experience, you know, the influencers, I guess I'm trying to understand how are they different than, for example, the 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 reviewers that I just described, and is there the same expectation of, for example, objective assessment of quality, or is it more about curation of taste and and I guess helping individuals watching virtually experience the products um, through their through I guess vicariously. I'm 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 losing the word here, but I, I, maybe you're catching my meaning. I totally get your meaning. Um, I would say. First and foremost, for us, it's about uh, the content creator curating a an event for the consumer based on what the content creator feels really true about. So let's say I walk, I love Saint Laurent and I can walk into a Saint Laurent store or work with Saint Laurent, what have you. And I will pick up only the things that I love. We never ask our content creators to push product that they don't believe in or like or would wear themselves. And so as the content creator, the influencer, if I'm curating style based on my own style and I'm, I'm picking up bags and shoes and jackets and, uh, you know, pants and what have you, then over time, what happens is our audience tends to gravitate to the content creator, the influencer whose style really resonates with them. And so, I have customers that, you know, they only love Oksana and they will shop only from Oksana because they love her style and they tune in on every single live. They want head to toe to wear what Oksana is wearing or others right. that love Irina or Allegra or whoever. we got a, a, so many amazing um, uh, influencers on our platform. And so what, what happens is, you know, in the early days, they might be new to the platform and maybe our audience doesn't know them, but they will learn to love their style. And because it's supposed to be very genuine and true to the content creator, the same way you would follow a watch enthusiast because you trust him. Our right. customers follow these influencers on our marketplace because they trust their style and they, they will buy literally anything that they post because they know that, you know, this person who I trust will give me what they love. I think that's so interesting because here you have the comparison or the contrast between these two groups of here you have journalists who are expected to maintain objective uh, journalistic integrity, 
versus an influencer who's curating their subjective taste and gaining followership that aligns to that taste and is and is and wants to emulate that. That is, you know, very different and and ultimately for this purpose much more valuable than somebody who is out there, you know, let, let's say reviewing articles of clothing, right? I, I think that, I and that is very cool because it, to your point, it is a different type of interaction and a different type of experience. And um, I, I guess I'm curious then building on this topic of influencers and uh, for, for a shop thing, that management of these relationships with influencers, especially influencers being still relatively new to our world, right? At least in their current version uh, over the last five to 10 years, how had you grown to to under, to manage this aspect of shop thing as a business versus you know previously building digital products right yes you have to deal with consumers and understand their interactions and their feedback and stuff like that on the, on the apps and products um, but that is a very different experience to now scaling a business that has this entirely distinct component to it that's a very human aspect of managing these relationships. Yeah. You know, we didn't invent influencers. Um, and luckily for us, somebody else before us did. Uh, thank you, Instagram. And yeah. so there are a lot on Instagram and TikTok to choose from. So what we have found is, you know, if our influencers, and we have a very specific scouting process of how we find them and interviewing process and casting and all this fun stuff. But when we do find them, they have already built uh, some sort of following on one of the other social platforms. Right. And so just by way of having done that, we already know that this person has been able to garner influence uh, within a set of population, whatever that population is. Um, so it, it's kind of like somebody's already done all the hard work. We're just piggybacking off what already exists. Uh, and using those people to then create influence within our marketplace, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that makes total sense. And, and the rise of the influencer over the last decade has been something very intriguing to me to, to watch um, and observe as a, a digital consumer. I guess I'd like to pivot now and talk a little bit about, you know, your leap from having a senior leadership position um, in a, a, a large advertising company to then, you know, where your previous experience had been acquired and, you know, you had this legacy and uh, in that organization, obviously an objectively successful position to be in. And then obviously you have this collision of your capability and skill and experience with a passion area with a massive opportunity or white space, right? It's the perfect recipe for, for making the leap. But how did you rationalize finally making that leap? What was it that helped you make that decision? Because I often, when I have the opportunity to talk with an entrepreneur on here, you know, like to share that there's obviously many people out there sitting at their desk, at their computer, you know, in a corporate job, but they have an idea and they've been, you know, wrestling with whether or not they should go for it for who knows how long. How did you ultimately make that decision? I will say, Peter, uh, you know, over the last 15 years, I've had a ton of incredible ideas that I wish <laughs> I would have been brave enough to have started. And some that I watched literally years after, you know, they existed in my head, become these multi-million, billion-dollar industries and companies. Um, but, you know, I, I was never brave enough. I didn't think I had the skill set to be able to do it. I think what really helped was having scaled and been a part of a sale of a company uh, yeah. like plastic was a really big help. Like it, it 
showed me that this is possible. I can do it. I've built a skill set. I've built a skill set, which has allowed me um, to be able to feel more confident in doing that. Uh, And I think that's invaluable. But I will say this, you know, 15 years ago, when I had these crazy, incredible ideas that I wish I had started, there wasn't the same landscape in tech that there is today. There wasn't, there weren't accelerators. There wasn't this concept of like seed investing and angel investing. There weren't, none of that existed. And I think if I had the same ideas today and I was, you know, my twenties, early 20 year old self, I think I would, you know, have a lot more opportunity to be able to do uh, any, you know, to be able to embark on any venture because right. there's so much support that exists for entrepreneurs, especially in the tech space. I don't, I can't speak to other spaces because I'm only in tech, but there's so much support that exists. Um, and it just didn't exist in my day. So I mean, I would say if you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about something, the younger you are, the better, the less risk there is. I was just really fortunate that I'd come out of an incredible exit and had the means uh, and the support and the experience to be able to uh, leap. Yeah. And I think that makes total sense. And that's your point. There is that huge support for, um, for entrepreneurs now and startups. And I remember just even in the early stages, right, while I was at the University of Waterloo, which is obviously a very tech forward university, they had this small incubator on campus that was almost like a residence that people applied for. Um, and I'm, I'm forgetting the, the name of it now, but that was such a bizarre idea to me at the time. And yet here we have it scaled, uh, you know, available across so many different dimensions and in so many different spaces. Uh, so it's very cool to have seen the evolution of that from from relatively humble beginnings, particularly here in the Canadian market. Totally. You also don't have to physically be anywhere to be part of these accelerators anymore. You can, right. you know, you can be part of Y Combinator digitally. You don't have to be in San Francisco to be a part of this incredible tech accelerator that gets like you know, all this buzz and, you know, will make you an incredible company. Uh, All of this can now exist to you from anywhere you are, which wasn't really the case 15 years ago. So the opportunity is really ripe for a lot of founders today. That's very cool. And, uh, you know, building on this, I'm curious, uh, as as an entrepreneur, right, having gone through successful acquisition or exit uh, or sale of a company, do you go into something like a shop thing with a predetermined vision? Like, do you, or are you simply trying to create the best possible organization, the best possible product versus, for example, having a goal of an eventual sale or out of an eventual IPO and to be the CEO of, you know, uh, some sort of multi-billion dollar company in the future that has totally flipped the retail world upside down, I guess. Does it? Do you have to have that sort of goal or vision when when starting an organization like ShopThing, or is it okay to simply focus on the impact and and be along for the journey? I think it's totally okay to focus on the impact. First and foremost, you should care about the product you're creating, how it's impacting the world, and or your space. It doesn't have to be that you know that crazy, but uh, how it's impacting the industry, the market, what have you. I think that should always be your your first and foremost goal. But no, I, if you want, I think if you want to be a successful CEO and an entrepreneur, you always do have to think about what does that look like, especially when you think about we bring on funding. I, we took on our first in, institutional round of funding earlier this year. And you know the reality is investors aren't investing in this business because they're as passionate as you are and care about your vision. They're yeah. investing in your company because they want to see a return. So as a responsible um, 
financially responsible entrepreneur and CEO, you should always be considering what does my exit look like? Maybe it's not an exit, but what does five years from now look like? You know, how do I make sure that the people that have invested in me early on and my employees, because they've invested, you know, sometimes their salaries, sometimes their time, sometimes they take on this crazy risk. They give up another, you know, maybe a better job that would have been more fruitful for them. But they do that because they take a little bit of risk and you want them to also be rewarded. And so I think as a CEO, you have a responsibility to your shareholders and your team to make sure that you can uh, exit, whether it's through IP or acquisition in a really, really nice place uh, so that everybody is rewarded. Absolutely. Um, and that makes total sense. And then you talk about, for example, the employees that you have. And I think that there is a fundamental shift from a mentality standpoint uh, of being even a senior leader at an organization to a f- founder and leader of an organization. And so now as a founder and CEO with employees that are your very own, uh, how are you, how has your mindset shifted to uh, cultivating, you know, the appropriate growth mindsets and paths or processes for growth for the people coming into shop thing and trying to build their careers in this exciting organization? Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say I don't think much has changed. Um, Even at Plastic, I constantly thought about how do I not only, you know, grow the business because that was a big part of what we were doing, but also make sure that my team is constantly growing and they're being challenged and I'm mentoring them in the right ways. And, you know, uh, every person that works for you, whether you're a CEO or a VP or director, you're responsible for their some part of their career path and their journey. And so I don't think much has changed from that regard, I will say the one thing that has changed being, you know, uh, the captain of the ship is it is much lonelier being the captain of the ship <laughs> than it is being a VP or a director or manager. Um, even though you still care about cultivating the people and growing them and making sure that all of that matters. Um, it's obviously on a different scale. I don't think about one department. I now think about everybody. So it's a little bit more right. stressful. Um, but you also have nobody to commiserate with. Like you're kind of just, you always have to be the captain of the ship. And so even if you're, you know, going towards an iceberg, you got to be super cool. Like, no, we're good. We're going to turn the steer the ship and we're going to avoid that. Whatever that is, right. Really bad analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Totally. Um, Yeah. I was was just going to say, so for, for me, the thing that I've learned is it's, you know, it's become really important for me to network with other entrepreneurs and CEOs, Uh um, whether it's in my space or an adjacent space or totally outside of the space, but um, building community of other CEOs and entrepreneurs has been really instrumental for me uh, across this last year or two. I didn't really know that in the early days. I, I really didn't start doing it until just recently. But I've realized how incredibly important it is to have other people dealing with the similar challenges that you are that are not your staff. Because you can't really have those candid conversations with your staff. Um, but you can with a colleague that works uh, you know, in a similar type situation as you. I think that is such an exciting and valuable piece of advice and learning that you know across a number of different... Um, CEO founders or startup founders that have been on the podcast have come on, you know, haven't necessarily touched on or articulated that need for building community and networking with other CEOs and founders because of the unique position you're in as, you know, as you uh, so well Mm -hmm. put the captain of the ship at all times. That is, I think that is incredibly valuable and a powerful unlock for anyone who maybe has not come to that conclusion yet. And, and so I'm, I'm very excited that you said that. 
you know, from here, I'd love to pivot to maybe your vision for the future of this space in, in, in spite of the fact that you're still operating in kind of near future terms and, and on this transformative path, right? How do you see VR or AR or, for example, Web3 or Metaverse injecting itself or, or, or integrating shopping into those different types of technologies and, and expanding the experience beyond the screen of a device but into much more, I, I don't know, metaphysical or digital physical type of experiences? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because, you know, you talked about it a little bit earlier, but what we do is really that perfect intersection of physical retail yeah. with online commerce. Like we are, our influencers are in store, they're trying on product, they're touching it. It's almost like you're going shopping with them. And so really the next iteration of that is how do we integrate? technologies like metaverse, like VR, like AR into our experience. We're constantly playing with these things. I think for us, it's about, um, you know, innovation is incredible. But for me, I always think about what is responsible innovation look like? What is, you know, uh, reasonable innovation for what we're doing look like? And, and something that we think will stay. And I think it's kind of the early days right now for meta, for the metaverse, trying to figure out, you know, what environment exists, what's going to be the winner, you know, will people actually um, will people actually adopt this technology? They haven't seen such promising numbers uh, from the Facebook metaverse in terms of usage. So it's really waiting to see how that plays out. Um, but I think there's definitely more opportunity in the world of um, AR and VR for us, for sure. And and this is because I'm a huge nerd and grew up on video games. But in recent years, or you know, maybe even traditionally, if you think about like fantasy role playing games and you specking out a character in armor, right? That is the world of fashion in in gaming. And you know, uh, it's easy to chuckle at, but that for many people is their reality. But now you have video games that are really culture settling setting. Like let's say, for example, NBA 2K that has built out an entire parallel gaming experience that is literally just about walking around a city with outdoor basketball courts and stores and fits and et cetera and et cetera. And you have this like gaming based digital fashion industry. What do you see as the future intersection of that and like real retail and real fashion being? Because I feel like we're on, on the verge of a shift in that space. And, and I'm just very curious as somebody who doesn't sit in that space Maybe from an outsider's perspective, um, uh, have, what, what is your opinion of how that's evolving in the world of video gaming, especially given how big of a, a channel it's become in the world of media and entertainment? Yeah, I think actually retailers and brands are starting to kind of play with these things, whether it's gaming or the metaverse, building environments, uh, building virtual shops, all of those things. For us, I think we'll, we'll wait to see how it evolves and how brands take it on and, and what they decide to do. And then we will always be there to be their distribution channel. So, you know, if brands are hopping on board, how does shopping help them in their virtual environments, in the gaming world? How do we help them continue to distribute their products in a really meaningful way? Um, which I think will change. Honestly, I don't know enough about the space as you do. So maybe we'll have to hire you as a consultant to help us get there. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Uh, I can, I can talk about all of the, the, the exciting NBA fashion trends going on in NBA 2K. Uh, that it. said, you know, 
I, I love to ask, particularly founders, because I think maybe you're a little bit more conscious and aware of the idea of legacy and, and maybe the, the impact that you want to make or leave behind with the product, organization, or service that you're building. What is that for you 10, 20 years down the line? You know, What is the definition of success for a shop thing and kind of the transformation that you're introducing into the retail space? You know, when I set out um, to build this company, it was always for me about disruption. I know it sounds kind of crazy and like not a lot of people really love disruption, but I, I thought about, you know, e-commerce came into play, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years ago. And since then, there wasn't ever a disruption in the retail space or in shop, in the shopping space. And I really see this as the next disruption to traditional e-com, not to retail, because I think there'll always be a place for physical retail. People really, especially post-pandemic, people really enjoy going in, touching, feeling. And I, I think that will there will always be a place for physical retail. But I think what we're doing is really elevating traditional e-com. And so I had set out to disrupt e-commerce and disrupt the way online shopping happens today. And so really the success for me looks like that, exactly that, being able to successfully disrupt it, bringing on a new way of shopping that uh, hopefully will take on traditional e-commerce the way e-commerce took on brick and mortar. We, you know, and I, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for that. And I think there's, we see it in the conversion rates, live commerce conversion rates start between five and 30%. Uh, And, you know, traditional e-com is like one to 2%. So it's already five to ten x what tra- what traditional e-com conversion rates look like, uh, and so there's a lot of benefit for retailers and brands and and everybody to get on board with it. That is so exciting, and as somebody who works in the world of data and data strategy, hearing conversion numbers like that, uh, <laughs> I'm salivating at the opportunity. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, just unbelievable disruption. I think this is a really exciting space. And, you know, I have had such an unbelievable time chatting with you today, Maggie. I think that your career journey and and now your journey with ShopThing is a really exciting one and one that many people can learn a lot from. Um, you know, I look forward to seeing how this space continues to evolve and maybe having you back on the podcast in the future as you've continued to transform the future of retail. So thank you again for your time and thank you for the, the wonderful conversation. Thank you, Peter. It was really lovely speaking to you and I would happily come on the show again. 